morning, everyone. Uh, <clears throat> so today, uh, today, Professor's going to be starting with Chapter 4, and uh, we've already talked a little about this already, but we'll be going into more detail here, the principle of capitalizing incomes. Professor. Thank you very much. <clears throat> you already mentioned this principle, but it's so important that I think I want to elaborate on this and we'll again have today I mentioned that uh, this principle was first announced by Frank Fetter, an American economist in the early 20th century, and <clears throat> this was a great step forward because the Remember, we have been discussing the <clears throat> indirect conversion of wealth into income and income into wealth, which was an advancement over the direct conversion, which is hoarding and this hoarding. And the development of this theory was greatly retarded by centuries of usury laws, which addressed the problem of exchanging wealth and income. But still, there was there was a, a defective understanding. So let's look at the example again, which we have already looked at. There is a lender and there is a borrower. So a col two columns. On the left, the lender. and a borrower. And let's suppose the lender, under lender, put down $1,000. And that's the wealth. Now, on the borrower side, put down, please, $50 per annum. So here is the wealth on the left. And here is the income on the right. And we can describe this landing transaction by saying that the lender exchange the wealth, $1,000 for an income of $50 per annum. And that uh, we can see that this is what percent per uh, five percent. So, 
somewhere in the middle of top, top, right down, this is 5%. Yeah. Now, the interesting thing is that there are two ways we can describe this transaction. The one is the obvious one, which invited the invited the uh, criticism and even vehement objection of the canonists and the secular uh, anti-usury economists that somebody lent a thousand dollars at five percent which meant $50 per year interest payment. But there is another way of describing this, and this has been ignored or de-emphasized, which is that the borrower has sold income, an income of $50 per annum for the sum of $1,000. See, this is exactly the same contents, but it's a different angle, different perspective. That the borrower is actually selling something. He's selling income, you see. So he is no longer appearing as a subordinate, as a down underdog, somebody who is suffering and being kicked around, not at all. He has sold something, income. And obviously, whoever bought that income needed the income. So this is a much more balanced view. And that's the great merit of uh, Frank Fetter's uh, principle of capitalizing incomes. Because you see, what this fellow does is he has an income and he can capitalize it. It's very important because what he has, the income, is also very much in demand. So this is a really a, a transaction where both participants benefit. You see the other description, which gave rise to the usury laws, is it doesn't bring this out. It makes the impression that the lender is the boss and the borrower is the slave. And that's not, just not the case. There is a give and take. And there's a bargaining on the, uh, underneath. And as a result, this exchange takes place. <clears throat> so, what I want to do now is I read again this formalized statement about the principle of capitalizing income. And uh, we do this uh, discussion. I'm going to talk to Sandy asking questions and answers and then butt in any time 
if you don't understand something. <clears throat> so the uh, principle of capitalization of income states that the value of wealth is the wealth the, in the abstract as we have been talking about wealth versus income. So the value of wealth is due to the possibility of deriving income from it. Income is logically primary and it is the source from which the value of wealth is derived. The capitalization of comparatively safe permanent incomes contains within itself all the factors for the independent Determin uh, determination of the rate of interest, you see? Because traditionally it's the other way around. You think that wealth is pr uh, primary and then you lend it out and that is how interest can be calculated. But the fact is that this is reversible. You can start from the other end, and it is thanks to this principle which makes this exchange possible. Because originally we had the direct conversion, and now we have the exchange. But exchange can be can come about only if somehow equality, an equality can be set up between the things you are exchanging. Or at least there have to be two parties to the exchange and they both must find some benefit. All right. So, I think this is the basis, and, and this is the real approach to the problem. The canonical uh, fathers and the others who criticized and, and looked for usury and all that, they were on the wrong track. As a matter of fact, if you introduce the usury laws, what will happen to the rate of interest? It will be artificially higher than it needs to be. Yeah, because there is a risk premium. Mm. Why is there a risk premium? <laughs> you could get thrown in jail, I yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Or you can be dragged in front of the Inquisition, <laughs> which could be lethal. <laughs> so you see? It's absolutely counterproductive. Does everybody see this? 
The usury laws were meant to protect the weak, hmm. the, the, the poor guy who needs money and he hasn't got it, so he has uh, to borrow it. Okay? But the fellow who lends the money to me is a Scrooge. He is a Shylock. He is sharpening his knife because he is expecting that the little guy will not be able to pay the interest. And then he has a contract that in that case, what can he do, Shylock? Pound of flesh. Pound of flesh, yeah. but from any part of the body of Antonio, yeah. okay? It's not the pound of flesh, but it's any part. And it's quite clear that he's going to cut his heart out because he hates his guts, he's his competitor, you see. Now, that's completely wrong. Well, I'm not criticizing Shakespeare, by the way. <laughs> I'm just pointing out that there is another angle, you see? And the other angle is that the little guy has a surplus of income because he is energetic, he is strong, he is, uh, and, and let's assume he's also bright. And then he commands surplus income which he can give in exchange. So it's, it's very important. So this possibility of an exchange is due to this principle. Now, I'm not saying that Fatter invented this. He, he codified it. He formalized it and made a formal statement. But it, it was prevailing all this time. I mean, these exchanges have taken place and <coughs> And uh, in the subconscious, it was always there. It just had to be codified properly to bring out the much more even-handed uh, description of uh, the transaction itself. Okay. So, uh, going back to this idea of protection, the usury laws were supposed to protect the living fellow. You see? And as a result of the usury laws, which uh, were formulated that under, say, 4%, lending and borrowing was all right, but anything above 4% was usury and was punishable, etc., etc., etc. Okay? Now, it means that if the market rate of interest was actually higher than 4% and the exchange took place, as a result of the usual uh, law, 
they had to add an interest pre uh, sorry, risk premium to the market rate. Suppose the market rate was four and a half percent, which is above the, uh, the usury rate specified in the usury law. Then you took a chance when you made the exchange because you could be caught and you would be dragged to the court and punished, you see? So as a result, they wanted to make the exchange. They did make the exchange, but four and a half percent for no longer, uh, was for no longer satisfactory because you had to cover the risk on the subsided borrower. So, you, you see what I mean, that this was counterproductive. It's very similar to uh, uh, price uh, control. Very similar. In fact, it's, it's the identical. Uh, usually during wartime, because of the uh, dilution of the value of money on the part of the government, prices rise. So take the price of bread, okay? Take the price of bread. Uh, it goes up because the money lost its value. That's the natural thing. And the government doesn't like it. So easy, no problem. Just make a law that if you charge more than one dollar for a loaf of bread, then you are breaking the law. You'll be punished accordingly. However, if the baker sold the bread for one dollar, he would make a loss. He adds up his expenses, price of flour, other ingredients, and the price of fuel, to fire his, uh, his uh, uh, oven, oven. <laughs> and then labor over it, etc. And then he cannot cover his costs if the bread, he says, is one dollar low. So he has to charge more, you see. But then there's a risk involved. So even though he could sell his bread at one dollar and a quarter and break even and make a, a decent profit, he now has to charge more than a dollar and a quarter. He will have to charge a dollar and a half to cover the risk of uh, getting caught and uh, being fined or punished. So the government had the purpose of making bread cheaper and instead he made the bread more expensive. Exactly the same story. So any question, any comment? No questions? Well, we've seen this in Zimbabwe. Hmm. The price controls were obvious and the money 
if you charge more than a million Zimbabwe dollars for bread or something, I don't know what the price was. Well, bread disappeared. Mm. You, could, you could get bread, of course, but not on the shelves. Mm. Now, I, <coughs> I make a little bit of philosophical introduction here. Let's just say a few words. There are two great philosophical principles. One is very widely recognized and understood, and the other is not so much. And uh, the champion of the first one, which is a very valid uh, principle, is the causality. Cause and effect in the physical world, but also in society. And in fact, every department of science, according to Menger, I think if you read Grunsetze, the author's introduction, the first sentence is something like that, that there is no department of science where the principle of cause and effect does not prevail. He does say that. Well, that was before quantum mechanics <laughs> and, and uh, uh, modern physicists claim that the law of causality has to be discarded. I'm not going to go into that. But I don't think there's a universal agreement on this mm. that in quantum. So there are other, but this is just a side remark. And it goes back to Aristotle. He codified it, and uh, this was a very successful uh, principle which helped develop physics, chemistry, and just name it. It's it's. Uh, the very fundamental uh, principle in all science. Now, what is the other philosophical principle which is not so widely known, not so widely recognized, but it's still valid nevertheless, especially in economics? What's this other principle? No contradiction. No contradiction. The principle of no con no contradiction. No contradiction. No, no. Uh, it's uh, don't think of uh, philosophy so much. But anyhow, no. Okay. Teleology. What? Teleology. T teleology. Please put it down. As uh, distinct from theology. Yeah, R religious. Study, study of divine things. Teleology is derived from the Greek word. Um, the, the idea is that in human affairs there are ends and means. Okay, uh, that's important. This is dichotomy of ends and means. In other words, human beings 
choose ends. They are dissatisfied with their position and they want to improve their position, they want to get ahead and so on. So the way they do it, human beings, all of us, consciously or unconsciously, but we all do it, we pick ends. And then, after having fixed our ends, and another word for end is goal. Goal, goal, and there might be several others, but uh, we fix those, and then we look around for means. And another word for means is tools, tools yeah. but in a, in a very general uh, sense. So we have picked ends, and then we look around tools and, and get them, and use the tools. I mean, the tool could be something abstract, you know, like simply growing plants, in other words, time, then you use time as a tool. I mean, you have everything, the seeds and the fertilizers and so on, and put uh, them in the ground, but nothing will happen. You need time, okay? So uh, time, in this case, is a tool as well. Uh, that's what I mean by saying that tool in a very general sense of the word, okay. So, you use your tools and get to the end. Now this not maybe the end of it, because this was just an intermediate end to something else. So then you have means ends, and then another set of means to achieve a second end, and so on. And uh, then the question of ultimate ends comes into this. But let's just break it down one step. You pick an end, you apply the tools. Now, you can pick the proper tools and reach your goal. That's well and good. But it also happens, unfortunately, that some people did not pick the proper ends, and therefore they don't reach their end, or even have a counterproductive result. And uh, an example could be what we've just talked about. When the government introduces price controls, the end is to make goods cheaper, available for the people to buy, and prevent dissatisfaction of the people, which may end <coughs> in an uprising or all kinds of disturbances. But as it turns out, could you continue my sentence? Or anybody could continue. As it turns out, the government has picked the wrong tool, and as a consequence, will not reach its end. And when 
the church introduces usury laws. The end is to make interest rate lower. But the church picked the wrong tooth. Wrong tooth. It's just counter, it's, it's worse than that. It's counterproductive. Rather than making the interest lower, it's, it's foregone conclusion that the interest rate will be higher as a result of the interference. So, and this is very often the case in government intervention in the economy. In fact, Mises says that you can, you can bet that if the government interferes, then it will be counterproductive. The outcome will be just the opposite of what the uh, government wants. So oh, this is very important, the choice of tools. And, and then this is the secret of human progress. You see? So uh, this, this second philosophical principle, principle of teleology, or means and nexus, you see, is really just as important. Uh, but this is limited to human action, to study of how human individuals act and also how societies develop. Whereas the uh, principle of causality, did we write yes. this word? Causality, which goes back to Aristotle, is discovering the whole universe. Living and uh, what's uh, inanimate? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so this is a, a much more general principle. Uh, teleology is not 